The Invincible Teams podcast is powered by Evergreen. Evergreen provides teamwork, training, and consulting to help your team thrive in every season. If you want to have a team that makes other leaders jealous, get started by going to their website in the show notes and scheduling your free consultation today. Welcome to Invincible Teams, a podcast for team leaders and business owners who are tired of dealing with drama and politics, high turnover, and teams not meeting their potential. We know that team leaders and business owners like you are pretty much always under pressure to get the most out of your teams. And we believe that every team should reach their potential and that if we get intentional, our teams can become invincible. Hey, welcome back to the Invincible Teams podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Mayfield. Today, I've got a guest. Uh, Her name is Laura Kriska, and Laura is an author. She's got a book coming out called The Business of We. Laura's goal is to create a we-building revolution in the world. And what does she mean by we-building? You'll just have to listen up and find out. Laura talks a lot about the us versus them challenge that uh, is in companies and teams and just in culture in general. Uh, She's got an incredibly interesting story about growing up in Japan and uh, just being involved in a lot of different cultures and teams around the world and in her personal experience and now as she helps other companies to become uh, we builders and to eliminate the us versus them culture. So I think you're really going to like this conversation. We start out talking a really big picture about culture in general, and even some, uh, some things that have been going on recently within the U S culture and just some big divisive issues. And so we talk about that and then we eventually get into some more Uh, small scale, practical, what does this mean for your team at your company? Uh, And how can you also become a a culture of we rather than the more common us versus them and why that is important for your team? So uh, listen in. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Laura Kriska. Laura Kriska, welcome to Invincible Teams Podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me today. I'm super excited to have you. Uh, I, I am incredibly interested in your work and the book that you're, as at the time of this recording, getting ready to put out there. I think it will be available uh, by the time people listen to this. Uh, but I just, I think what little I've heard of your story, I find very, very interesting. And so let's start there. Tell people who you are and what it is that you do. And then I even want to hear a little bit more about the story of how you got here today. Well, it starts with being born in Japan. My parents were missionaries. So I was born in Tokyo, but I grew up in Columbus, Ohio after the age of two. So I had this kind of uh, unusual beginning, but um, so I was always really interested in Japan. In Mm. college, I spent a year at Waseda University. And then after college, my very first job was working for uh, Honda Motor Company. I was the first Mm. American woman ever to work in their Tokyo headquarters. Mm. And I wrote about that experience in my very first book, which was a long time ago, uh, published a long time ago, called The Accidental Office Lady. And Mm. It was about the culture difference that I encountered being a 22-year-old person going out into the world. There's a culture difference um, for any person. Mm. And then there's the culture difference between Japan and the United States. 
So I was going through all these different types of culture gaps. I, I call them us versus them gaps. Mm-hmm. And I spent my career working as a cross-cultural consultant, primarily helping people bridge the culture gap between Japan and America. But in recent years, I've been expanding the notion of culture and my definition of culture so that the us versus them dynamic is applied, can the us versus them dynamic can be applied to any situation. There is an epidemic of us versus them gaps in our country right Hmm. now. I hadn't noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this book is written as an antidote to those gaps. Mm, Yeah. Well, like I said, I find it fascinating and, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about some of the, you know, actual cultural experiences and things like that, that have have led you here along the way. But, you know, you mentioned the book, uh, it's called the business of we, uh, the proven three-step process for closing the gap between us and them in the workplace. And so, you know, I want to know a little bit more why you wrote this book, Why is it so needed right now, you think? In addition to the epidemic of us versus them gaps going on, I feel that there is a growing number of people who want to connect across differences. Hmm. And a lot of those people, not all of them, but a lot of those people are middle-aged white people like me. (laughs) And they, there are a lot of us out there. Yeah. And they're part of a growing multiracial, multiethnic coalition of people who are interested in working together with people independent of their backgrounds. Hmm. And I think there's, um, in my generation, when I was growing up, there was definitely a message of being colorblind, you know, culture silent, Hmm. just weren't supposed to talk about race or ethnic differences. And it seemed as though as long as you didn't talk about those things, everything was fine. Hmm. But one lesson I have come to understand that is so clearly important and true is that being colorblind is not a useful and effective approach to dealing with the us versus them race gap in our country, Mm -hmm. being culture silent when it comes to religious differences or um, ethnic differences is not enough. Proximity to other people who are not the same as you is not enough in today's world. We have growing diversity in our schools, in -hmm. our communities, in our government. Yeah. And There's this false belief that, two points, this false belief that having a diverse group of people, sometimes it's called cosmetic diversity, that Mm -hmm. that alone is enough. And and that's a good thing to have more representation, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough to create fundamental and foundational change. Mm -hmm. So people who... I I believe there are so many people who want to do better, who understand that it's not enough to to kind of have that proximity. Mm -hmm. And and the other point is that um, having kind of wishful thinking Mm -hmm. or thinking like, okay, well, I don't actively discriminate Mm -hmm. against people who, you know, practice a different religion or are a different ethnicity, right? 
So there's been this, again, the second point of this false thinking that as long as I'm not actively doing something to harm somebody, mm-hmm. that's enough. And that's not enough. Mm. It's, it's almost, I feel that, and this is part of why I wrote this book, and this is part of the we building revolution that I want to inspire, is having people actively bridge gaps, actively build trust, actively connect across difference, which means that you see difference. You acknowledge that somebody is a different race or a different ethnicity or Mm -hmm. religion or whatever it is. Um, You try to understand it. It doesn't mean you have to believe the same things or behave and follow the norms of another group, but it, it means that you respect it and you understand it. And then you work together with people Mm -hmm. who have simply grown up differently than you have. Maybe they speak a different language at home, Um, you know, whatever those differences are. So we building Hmm. is taking deliberate action to build connection across difference. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And and I want to, I want to dive more into that, but I also want to go back real quick to a couple of things that you said there. Um, You know, the first thing was you, you talked about, this idea of just don't mention it, right? Just, just, it's almost like pretending like it's not a thing, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that strikes me as something that's possible or easy to do only if you are in the majority culture. Is that accurate? I agree that if you identify with the majority culture, whatever that happens to be, you don't feel the discomfort of not taking action. And that's what has happened in America for over 50 years since the civil rights legislation was passed. There has been Mm -hmm. negligible change Mm -hmm. despite Mm -hmm. laws, despite activists, despite many efforts. There has been negligible change, and that is unacceptable. And I believe a big reason for that goes exactly to your point, Ryan, is that people in the majority have not taken steps to make those changes, you know, right. some have, and some, many of us have made small efforts, which is great, but mm. we need more of the people who identify with the cultural majority to take more frequent, bigger actions yeah. uh, in order to affect real change. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, if we say that that's not an option, right, just this silence and pretend like it's not a thing, mm-hmm. I, I think one misconception, uh, at least the way that I see it, one misconception is this idea of, um, I wouldn't even call it diversity, but kind of a homogenous kind of group. Like, yes, we can all be different and it's going to blend into some single culture, but it doesn't seem to me like that is the way forward. That's not real diversity, right? Real diversity is the recognition of differences and the valuing of those in how they come together, not just at a societal level, but, you know, for teams of people working together, is that, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And it it, like, you know, assimilating to the dominant culture is not diversity, right? It's the dominant culture, the people who, you know, make up that bigger number, it's them. I I like to refer to that dominant culture as the home team. Mm, Yeah, that's good. And so the home team has advantages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if you use your advantages, then we can get uh, true diversity, substantive diversity. Um, we get integration. We get the home team learning about other 
marginal up until now up marginalized groups. Right. So it actually, so all this way of thinking came to me because of my experiences in Japan. Mm-hmm. Japan is an extreme version. It's 98% Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so the companies that I would work with and, and continue to work with have, you know, large numbers of Japanese people in their organizations outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. And 20 years ago, the top positions were almost exclusively all Japanese, Japanese men. Mm-hmm. And it was really a kind of battle to help them see how important it was to have non-Japanese people in positions of power. Mm-hmm. So Working with outside of America and working with this particular very homogeneous population helped me see something that I couldn't see here in America because I am part of the dominant cultural majority. <laughs> right. I'm white. Yeah. And so I grew up in a very white community. I grew up not questioning things. I I am a um a kind of what's the right way to say that? Uh I am a product of our kind of segregationist <laughs> culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody want, wants to say that. No, you know, people I know would never say, oh, I, I, you know, they don't want to identify as, as trying to be separate, but many of us live very separate lives. And I certainly did. Yeah. And so by living with and around Japanese colleagues and seeing how limiting it would be, for example, in business, but also beyond. If you have only one group of people making all the decisions, mm-hmm. supporting all the power, um, you're not going to get the best ideas. Yeah. And so this helped me see how corporate America still ha- is is dominated by a particular group of people. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, middle-aged white men. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not against middle-aged white men. Some of them are my favorite people. I have created two future white men for the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I'm not trying to make people feel bad or attack, but it just seems like, all right, does any, it's so obvious that the, uh, the percentages and the representation yeah. is not reflective of our real diversity in the United States. Yeah. You know, one of the other things you mentioned is you called it cosmetic diversity. And, uh, you know, I I think it's probably intentional, but that at least to my ears has uh, kind of a, a negative connotation associated with it. To, to be cosmetic is just to be on the surface, right? And so is that a problem because there's nothing really underneath it. It's just for show. Is that what you mean by cosmetic diversity? Mm-hmm. I read this uh, idea. I read about this idea of cosmetic diversity recently being cosmetic diversity versus substantive diversity. And it really uh, rang true for me. We have seen a huge increase in the number of non-white people being hired um, and promoted after the Black Lives Matter protests this spring. Mm, wow. I'm not against that. I, I think that's a good thing. But if those people are not also um, brought into the circles of power, if they aren't given the budgets, uh, if they aren't, if people aren't seeking their counsel, and importantly, if the people in those organizations are not 
actively building trusting relationships with those people, it is cosmetic. It is superficial. It, it, mm-hmm. It's not going to last. We, we've seen that in many organizations where they're trying to hire you know, for diversity. I know this is true in the legal field where, uh, for example, um, a person of color has hired a lawyer uh, and he or she is the only one or mm-hmm. one of few in the law firm. And then their retention is, is has been, there's evidence to show that retention is very low. They might stick mm-hmm. around a short while, but they don't feel a sense of belonging. People don't actively include them. They're, they're, they're not sought after for their counsel or their, you know, contributions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so cosmetic diversity does not lead to foundational change. It's a right step. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, but again, it's not enough. Yeah. Oh, well, that makes sense. So talk then, you know, this is this us versus them mentality that you're talking about. And, and you mentioned we building. So talk about we building, uh, what is it and why is it so important to help solve this problem? We building can solve the epidemic of us versus them gaps going on because it actively seeks to narrow the gap. So we building is taking any deliberate action to close a gap. So let me give you a very simple example. Um, If, uh, let's see, let me think of my most simple example. So a very simple example is in the use of names. Hmm. Your name is Ryan, my name is Laura. If we looked on the, you know, the top 200 list of names in America, our names are gonna be on those lists. They're they're common names. When someone has a name that isn't on the top 200 or top 500 list of names traditionally in America, there's a tendency for people like Laura's and Ryan's to be like, what, huh? Or, or we just don't do the work to learn that person's name. Right. Or we think, oh, I, I don't want to ask them again. Or, or we think, oh, that's too hard to say. Mm. Uh, I, I definitely saw this happening when I worked with Japanese and American professionals. You know, names when they are in a different language or from a different ethnic background uh, mm. can be difficult, but it's not impossible. It's not even right. close to impossible. It right. just takes a little effort. <laughs> yeah. The, the number of times where I feel like I've met someone, you know, a, a, a student or, or somebody that's, um, you know, not originally from the U S and ask them what their name is. And they might say something like John and I'm like, okay, come on. Your name is not John. Like, I want to know what your actual name is because that's important. Right. Like, uh, and so I, I totally understand what you're saying there, but but I think people are trained to do that. And they say things like John, because, because that's been their experience is their name has been either just butchered or, or people can't be bothered to learn it. I don't know what it is. So I want to go back to your earlier point, Ryan, that's an example of the difference between people assimilating to the majority culture. Hmm. So the old way of, Oh, a foreigner comes to America and isn't seen and isn't uh, heard for who he is. So mm. in order to be seen and heard, he takes on a name like John. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking at a conference table, you can say, hey, John, what do you think? Right. That That's right. an adaptive uh, adjustment that the non-home team member has made. Right. And I'm arguing for, uh, and I think you are as well, is home team people like Ryan and Laura 
make the effort to learn this person's name without having them, them having to make this adjustment. Yeah. So that we are including that person for the themselves, who they actually are. Right. Right. So, okay. Tell me, tell me more. What's another example of we building? Okay. So saying somebody's name correctly is, is kind of inconsequential uh, example. In my book, The Business of We, I talk about three categories of behavior of we building. So we building can occur in three categories. And again, we building is taking deliberate action to build trust, to understand, to narrow a gap. Mm. So the three categories are safe category, uh, consequential, or sorry, there's safe category, challenging category, and radical category of we building. Okay. So um, doing something uh, like s- learning how to say somebody's name before you meet them, or you you know, want, want to make sure you can do that in private. You could Google a name and there are pronunciation um, hmm. apps that will tell you how to say it. So safe behaviors and safe we building choices are things you do in private. There's no risk involved. Hmm. Uh, you can do as much or as little. Uh, you're not face-to-face with people. Hmm. Uh, challenging we building involves some type of face-to-face interaction. So if we use this example of uh, uh, maybe um, someone who's not identifying with the home team culture that comes into the organization, mm-hmm. a we builder m- might try to include that person face-to-face, say, hey, let's have lunch, or hey, we all go out on Fridays to this place. Do you want to join us? Mm-hmm. It, it's an active Act, uh, it's a deliberate action to include other people. Hmm. So let's say you find out that this person who we were referring earlier to as John, who is not really John, we find out that this person is from India. Okay. Hmm. This is a, a country where you have spent time, Ryan. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's say it, somebody in the workplace hasn't spent any time in India, but they having lunch, they find out, oh, this person is from India and maybe they say, well, what, what city or whatever. So then a challenging in that challenging action where you have face-to-face interaction, you're getting to know people. Building trust requires some level of self-disclosure. Hmm. And if you model that yourself, you know, other people may feel comfortable to share. Mm-hmm. And then a we builder might then go home and Google the name of the city. Right, oh, this right. person has said um, Agra, India. Agra. What? What can I learn? No. If that a wee builder spent two minutes on the yeah. internet googling Agra, India, they would find out the Taj Mahal. Yeah. <laughs> in Agra. So then the next day they go up to this person and be like, "Hey, you live in the city where the Taj Mahal is. Like, right. let's talk about that, right?" So we builders are taking action that are going to continue the relationship, continue Hmm. the trust building and making people feel comfortable with self-disclosure so that we get to a point where the it's beyond cosmetic kind of connection and into the substantive connection. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. And it's, I mean, I don't want to reduce it too much, but a lot of it sounds like just taking an interest, which 
shows that you care, which shows that you value people, right? Uh, rather than just, I guess, valuing ourselves. Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of people who are, identify with the home team in the United States like to think of themselves just as you described. Hmm. But in reality, if you look at their day-to-day behavior, they make the same choices. They eat lunch with the same people. Hmm. They go to the same stores. Uh, they, they don't challenge themselves that much mm-hmm. to really move beyond comfortable home team environments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, couldn't agree more with all that. I think that's remarkable. So if we take this and, you know, we're talking on this grand scale right now of kind of society and culture, if we bring this down to a a more local level and we're talking about a team of people, whether it's an office, um, some other type of organization, whatever it is, why is it that us versus them, why is that so destructive to a team? When you have competitiveness and distrust among people on the same team, you are immediately losing out on resources that the organization could be leveraging toward positive outcomes like revenue, Mm. uh, like save time, like uh, happy customers. Mm-hmm. So anytime, for whatever reason, you have people working against each other within the same organization, within the same team, uh, you're not all moving in the same direction, you know, using all of your energies. Right. So it, it can be incredibly destructive to teams. The problem is that it's often the missed opportunities mm-hmm. that are the cost. And because missed opportunities are hard to measure. Right. People shrug it off and they think, oh, you know, whatever. And it's really only when challenged or I think when you really ask people to look and identify us versus them behaviors within their organizations, they usually can easily point them out. I'll I'll give you an example. I was working with a company that has um, uh, parts. They, I, I, I believe it was airplane parts and they had a European division and a division here in the United States. And in the, the division in Europe was a subsidiary. So in many companies where there's a, you know, a headquarters and subsidiary relationship, subsidiaries are viewed kind of not as important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the U S uh, headquarters, um, they had the same issue in terms of having to have their parts um, serviced Mm -hmm. and repaired. And there was one place that everybody wanted to go. And rather than work together to leverage both European and U.S. parts getting serviced, they were competing competing against each other Hmm. to this one service provider. And so the service provider was just, you know, increasing the cost and playing them off each other. Wow. And it just seems like such an obvious uh, missed opportunity, yet they were engaged in this kind of internal battle because uh, the headquarters wanted to be superior and didn't look at the subsidiary as an equal partner. Yeah. Well, and obviously in that situation, it was costing money, right? That they didn't need to, and I imagine uh, not small amounts of money, but on top of that, uh, time and energy, right? Resources, all those different things that are put towards an internal battle that 
is not the reason why that company exists, I'm assuming, right? Uh, I can't yeah. tell you how often I have seen these internal battles interfering. Sometimes it's personality related. Uh, sometimes it has to do with um, geography, you know, LA hmm. versus New York. Hmm. Sometimes it has to do when, um, you know, when you have a merger and acquisition, this is another hmm. common uh, pattern where the, the winning company, the, you know, the winning company has this kind of dominant culture rather than coming in as, okay, we are now a team. And if the dominant kind of company that's taking over the other one looks down on everybody else, if they don't actively rebuild from the mm -hmm. beginning, mm -hmm. then you're going to have these tensions because everybody is rooted to their original employer or their original, I'm, I'm thinking of a law firm that I know that merged. And there were these identities very tightly um, connected to the original firms, which is a normal thing, right? Sure. You career in a place and you have these strong identities. So when they merged, the firm that was kind of absorbing the other firm did not do a good job of mm. creating a we culture. And so, you know, your clients, my clients, you know, people who had great resources to share on behalf of their co common clients now, they didn't do that. They hid information. They, uh, you know, they they didn't work at building relationships. And so there is this kind of silent rivalry going on, which can be incredibly destructive. Yeah. I imagine that a lot of that is related to some, some less tangible, more relational things that we've kind of talked about, you know, trying to learn about people. But is there also an element that's just super simple, practical stuff, like where people's desks are compared to each other. Is that part of the equation as well? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is a great opportunity for leaders in an organization to look for change. And I'm, I'm going to go back to my kind of Japanese experience again. Mm -hmm. There was a clear pattern when the um, Japanese companies would send um very talented, hardworking Japanese staff to America or Europe um, to work in the subsidiaries outside Japan. And often the Japanese, usually men, they would sit together in a little corner and they'd speak Japanese all day and they'd be there before everybody got there in the morning and they'd stay till really late. So th these are people who really cared about the success of the company mm -hmm. um, and the surrounding American people or European people would see them and they'd see that, hear them speaking in a different language. And, and so this division would grow further and further. Hmm. And so kind of there was not an effort in many cases to actively integrate people. Uh, hmm. In a couple companies I know, uh, after we building training, they purposely moved people. They did not divide people by uh, what language they spoke. Mm -hmm. They put them in categories of business. Hmm. Now, this was hard for some of the Japanese staff because of English language. Mm -hmm. um, some of them had never been outside of Japan before. And this is where it's so important for the home team to make those uh, newcomers feel welcome. So when the home team people, the Americans or the Europeans, the people who you know understood the, the city, the space, the language, when they would actively include the Japanese person in things like having lunch together, 
having conversations. Uh, when the home team who has the advantage would slightly adjust their own behavior, um, for example, speaking a little slower, just mm. that, or learning one word, one word in another in Japanese. Yeah. Those small efforts had a huge impact. What what kind of impact? What what does that do whenever someone learns one word in someone else's language? You feel a connection. You mm. immediately break down that us versus them feeling. And because so few people do it, it really uh, resonates. Hmm. So I'm thinking, I, I have so many examples of, of where people have done this. Um, I'm, I'm going to, again, use the example uh, with Japanese. It's like learning to say somebody's name correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way to say good morning in Japanese, the most simple way to say good morning in Japanese is Ohio. Like the word <laughs> Ohio is like the state uh-huh. of Ohio. Uh-huh. And so you can, and when I, I teach people this, Ohio. So just saying Ohio to a Japanese person um, makes them feel connected. Hmm. And there is a, it, it's, it's welcoming people. So it's actively welcoming people in. So I'm actually um, remembering, I'm not sure if I can remember all the details correctly. Uh, th- so this is a, this is a story um, I told in the TEDx talk I gave a few years ago, mm-hmm. but this is what happened. It was in a big Japanese bank where was it a bank? It was a big Japanese company. And in that company, there was kind of a Japanese side and an English speaking side. Hmm. And the, there was a new American woman. And on the Friday of her first week of work, she brought donuts in nice Hmm. gesture, right? And she was handing them out to the people kind of on her side. And then she had some donuts and she offered them to the Japanese side. And there was kind of like this, what? Because there was this invisible wall that people just didn't but she was new. And so she hadn't picked up on this invisible wall. Yeah. She offers a donut. A Japanese woman takes a donut. She's like, oh, that's so great. And then the next week, the Japanese woman goes across and offers her some snacks Hmm. and they learn each other's names. They start building connections. They start this word of the day exchange uh, email that one day was English. One day was Japanese. Uh, and this builds, uh, people want to be on the email chain. And then they start studying, they start offering Japanese language classes in huh. the organization. And so now hundreds of people in this organization are learning a little bit of Japanese and every word is working toward narrowing that gap. So these small gestures, sometimes they they go nowhere. Sometimes it's just a nice gesture. You say, good morning you say guten tag, you know, in yeah. a different language. But sometimes, especially if you're a we builder and you're actively working at building trust with this other person, that small gesture can become a longer conversation, which can become a, a meal that becomes a shared experience that then when you have a real work crisis mm-hmm. and it's a Saturday, you can call somebody up and say, hey, I need your help. And because you have built up this relationship, um, people will help each other. You have this, com- you have a common customer who needs something on a Saturday, right. and there's no, you know, problem trying to solve. Uh, l- let me say, you have a customer who needs help, and so everyone's attention is going toward this particular problem, rather mm-hmm. than worrying about the us versus them dynamics that may have otherwise interrupted that. Yeah. 
Uh, that's an incredible story. And I also love how it points out the value in, in having some new, fresh people into a situation like that who don't know the uh, unwritten rules or, or boundaries or whatever it is. I think that's just a really cool story that highlights uh, some, some extra value in that as well. You know, you talk about us versus them. And um, one thing, are you, are you familiar with Patrick Lencioni? Have you read any of his stuff, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the top dysfunction uh, there is inattention to results. And what he talks about is inattention to team results. Instead, people start paying more attention to their own personal results. Um, well, I don't know what their department has been doing. My department has been killing it. Right. Um, is that, so that seems to have a, an intersection with this conversation mm -hmm. and some of the stuff that we talk about, even with clients that I have is trying to incentivize team-based performance, mm -hmm. right? The opposite of that, I feel like is what most people do is employee of the week or, you know, individualized bonuses and things like that. How does that play into the us versus them question? Uh, do you think that companies should have individual incentivization or should it all be team focused? I think there's a role and a place for individual incentivizing. Uh, but I I think it should be well thought through. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that there is a tendency, especially in a corporate America, to focus on the individual. And I've seen how, for example, Japanese companies that are very group oriented really have a hard time with that. I, mm -hmm. I know one company that they had a Japanese employee and they wanted to highlight his contributions with an employee of the month. Maybe I think it was a small amount of money and he was horrified because mm. that's not something that is typically done. So Japan is a very group-oriented culture, as are others. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a place for individual incentivizing, but I think that as that in the United States, we would benefit from paying more attention to the group because mm -hmm. we're already strong. We know we, we raise children to be highly independent, self-reliant, self-reliant uh, adults. This is something right. people really want to do. So, and I think this is one reason why we building is so needed right now. Hmm. Our pendulum has swung so far to the individual yeah. needs. And there are some situations where we have to work together in order to be successful. Yeah. And there's no better example of that than COVID. Hmm. How the so? divisiveness that has occurred between mask wearing versus not mask wearing, hmm. science versus not science. This is ridiculous. There is one us versus them, and that is humans hmm. versus a virus. Hmm. That's the hmm. only battle. This should be a tug of war. Humans on one side, a vi this virus on the other. <laughs> right. Because the virus has only one goal which is to find more and more hosts. Sure. They don't care if these are Republican hosts, Democratic hosts. They, <laughs> the virus is unaware. Yes. And rather than recognizing this as a very simple tug of war, there has been way too much us versus them in our own country's response. There, there's been uh, a lot written about how states were pitted against one another mm -hmm. uh, in trying to 
um, a, to get um, PPE. Right. And ra- so the the battle between states paying more and more and more to a foreign country right. for protective equipment when as a whole, as a country, we could have been working together. We could have yeah. had leaders saying, hey, here's here's the evidence. Places that use masks have a lower transmission rate. This is evidence. This has been proven. This research mm. shows um, that taking this action will help all of us. Yeah, I so think that's I, a- I think there's a place for for uh, individual rewards, but also the the group rewards and, and America could benefit uh, from more kind of we yeah. build. Well, I think that's a great example, um, both with the you know the virus stuff, but also even just the tug of war metaphor, because I'm I'm sitting here thinking, okay, tug of war, everybody knows how that works, but imagine if you were there trying to pull on two different ropes, you know, in different directions, you know, and that is like, yeah, of course you're never going to win either of those, right? And that is what we tend to do, whether it is, you know, as a society or within families or within corporate culture. Right. And so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense why we need to get everybody pulling on the same rope in the same direction and how that can have some really big benefits for, for companies and teams. Right. Yes. So I, I haven't been doing it recently because of COVID, but I use a simulation exercise. It's called the team machine and it demonstrates inside a corporation. It, 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 um, let's see the, the team machine simulates real life behavior between different departments. So in any organization, we have different departments and they have their own mandates as they should, Mm -hmm. right? Sales should be selling stuff. Uh, engineering should be creating stuff. Um, Accounting should be making sure we're getting paid for the stuff that has been engineered and sold, right? Different <laughs> right. departments. And so often in the organizations where I've uh, worked, I see that those different departments have us versus them dynamics. Mm-hmm. And doing this team machine exercise, it's a thing you build stuff. It's really fun. There is a way that you see in the game your own behavior in the workplace. Hmm. And it becomes very clear that when you have internal rivalries, the, and internal rivalries, internal us versus them dynamics could be based on personality issues. It could be based on bad history. It could be based on superficial things like differences in language and race and religion. Hmm. And whatever the reason, it interferes with the common goal, which is, you know, the real competition is outside the organization. The common goal is to um, satisfy customers, make good stuff that's well-engineered and is paid for in a timely manner. And and so when those organizations can see how their own behavior, the individuals in in those organizations can see how their own behavior interferes with that, I see people taking action to change that. Yeah. Well, and the reality is, even if you have the best sales team in the world, but your accounting department doesn't have the resources they need because of internal competition or whatever it is, then it doesn't matter that you have the best sales team in the world, right? Because it's going to break down. Yes. So, okay. Just a couple more things here before we wrap up. What would you say 
are some of the biggest differences that you see between teams that create and foster that we environment versus those that don't? I would say leadership. When leaders can see the value of a we mindset, when they model we behavior themselves, Mm -hmm. when they don't tolerate us versus them behavior and Mm -hmm. actually lift up we behavior, when they actively create opportunities for people to step up and to do better, it works. Hmm. So when I go into organizations and conduct training, for example, we building training, Mm -hmm. I like it to be voluntary. I I don't really like it to be mandatory. Hmm. Um, I mean, mandatory gets people in the door. That's one good thing. But I'm hoping that people will come in with an, a genuine interest hmm. and when the leaders in that organization are first in line, they're modeling we, a we mindset. And, right. and so I think the way leaders behave is critical. Hmm. Yeah. And I imagine the opposite's true. If they don't come in the door at all, you probably get a lot less buy-in from the company in general right? Yes. yes. And it's so important when those leaders are part of the cultural majority, Mm -hmm. it's even more important for Mm -hmm. them to be modeling inclusion Hmm. and participation um, that can make a huge difference. Hmm. That's so good. That's good. Well, so tell people a little bit more just about uh, the book and and where they can get it and all those things. I know it's coming out soon. And then anything else that you have going on that people might want to connect with you over and how they can do that? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so the book, The Business of We, is now available and um, it's published by HarperCollins. You can get it at any retailer. Um, so if anybody is interested in learning more about the we building work that I do, I'm doing a lot of online we building uh, webinars. And it's been great. The participation rates are so high hmm. because people are at home. And I've been able to share the message of we building around the world quite effectively. I have not gotten on a plane for over a year. So <laughs> <laughs> it actually, there is a there is a way that I can use technology to reach a a much greater number of people. So the best way is to go to my website and it's lauracrisca.com. And my last name is spelled with a K. Sometimes that's hard, but it's with a K. And uh, at lauracrisca.com, there is information about workshops that I offer both hopefully one day in person, um, but really, um, opportunities online that are available at any time. And I'm on social media. So that's also a way to connect with me. Well, we will link all of that in the show notes here. So you can find those uh, very easily and and get the book and check out uh, her other resources, whether it's social media or, or even, I mean, do you book private workshops, just any company that wants to. So yeah, Yeah. Uh, jump on there and reach out. I'd like to say I also love speaking to nonprofit groups. Um, Mm. I kind of have two channels. Uh, It's important to me to share these tools with a wide range of people. Um, It's my goal to inspire a we building revolution. Mm. And I want to do that in the corporate world. And I want to do that outside the corporate world. So I do speak to groups. Um, at no or low fees, because I think it's really important to share these tools with as many people as I can. So please 
uh, contact me if you're interested in that. Yeah. Well, I love it. Uh, and, and Laura, this has been a really great conversation. I feel like I could keep talking to you for uh, a long time about this. Uh, the The book is called The Business of We, The Proven Three-Step Process for Closing the Gap Between Us and Them in the Workplace. And uh, if you found this conversation at all interesting, please go check it out uh, and check out her other work. Laura, thanks so much for um, being on today and uh, we'll, we'll talk again sometime soon. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening today to the Invincible Teams podcast. Please consider giving us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you are currently using. If you think today's content might be useful for someone you know, please consider sharing it with them. Just a reminder that the Invincible Teams podcast is brought to you by Evergreen. Evergreen provides teamwork training and consulting to help you eliminate office drama and turnover and help you get the most out of your team. Thanks again for listening. And like we always say, we believe that every team should reach their potential and that if we get intentional, our teams can become invincible. See you next time.